This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't worry, I've not been suspended for 90 days. Uh, Don't forget, you can listen to me live on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. But here on the Red Box Podcast, we bring you the best bits. We always bring you the columnist panel and the big thing. The big thing today, we're taking a look at freedom. They talk a lot about it in American politics, but what does it really mean to Brits? The pollster Frank Luntz takes us through uh, the British attitude to freedom and whether or not either of the main political parties could capitalise by talking about it more. Uh, That's coming up in just a moment, but as we always do on a Tuesday, stand by, it's these two. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. You've got a friend in me. So which, which dynamic duo are you this week? Woody and Buzz, I guess. Woody and Buzz. <laughs> the Woody and Buzz of news analysis. Oh, I see. Which is which, I'm going to I'm going to say you're you're Buzz Lightyear, Danny, <laughs> and Henry, you, you're Woody. I think that's the wrong way round. Is it? Woody is solid and dependable and experienced. Yeah, that's, and that's Danny. <laughs> and your Buzz is, you're prone, a, to is, is a, <laughs> prone to malfunctioning <laughs> and a bit of a strange addition to the mix. Uh, anyway, there we are. Well done. Uh, good. Uh, we, I suppose we would actually move on and talk about the action. Danny Finkstein and Henry Zeffman are both here uh, now. Uh, this is a trigger warning, because yesterday we banned talking about him. Uh, but today we are going to talk about uh, what happened in the House of Commons yesterday uh, and the question of privilege and what we actually learned from uh, the debate. Um, you watched, did you watch all of it, Danny? Not absolutely all of it, but yeah, I watched large parts of it. Um, and um, you know, it was pretty interesting. There, there were... There, there were some very good speeches. Theresa May was very good. Andrea Lidson was very good. Margaret Hodge was very good. Harriet Harman was excellent. They really hit the point, which was it was about lying to the House of Commons. Unfortunately, Thangham Debonair and I think her surname is Brock. And I can't remember the Deirdre. name. Deirdre Brock, the SNP uh, MP, decided to go on the parties. I couldn't disagree with anything they were. They said they also were critical of the Prime Minister. I thought that was actually. You know, merited, I'm afraid, um, for not for not coming. Um, 
But I think it was a mistake because um, this was an important occasion where Parliament was asserting its sovereignty. But the most interesting thing was the the poor number and quality of people supporting Boris Johnson. You can see why Jacob Rees-Mogg has emerged as his, you know, his closest ally. Um, he was by far the most uh, eloquent of and coherent of his defenders. But it was, you know, I, I said it, you could see the hole in his argument, um, you know, from a sky. What he did, it's a very classic thing. He found all the things he felt were, were wrong in the uh, in the report and tried to pick them apart, but never really dealt with the central point, which was he was assured. He said, told the House of Commons repeatedly that he'd been given assurances. He had not been given and had been told he couldn't repeat. I think we've got a clip of Jacob Rees-Mogg and, uh, and Harriet Harman. Let's take a listen. I'm very grateful to the Right Honourable and Learned Lady, but I wonder if she could say something of her own position in relation to the precedent set by the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords when a decision on which Lord Hoffman was involved was set aside not because he was biased, but because of the perception of bias. In relation to her famous tweets, how does she think she met the Hoffman test? I made it my business to find out whether or not it would mean that the government would not have confidence in me if I continued to chair the committee. And I actually said I am more than happy to step aside oh. because perception matters and I don't want to do this if the government doesn't have confidence in me because I need the whole House to have confidence in the work that the committee has mandated. And I was assured that I should continue the work that the House had mandated with the appointment that the House had put me into and so I did just that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure who that was. It was interesting, Henry, that this is a, this was an argument she hadn't put forward before when all the complaints about her her bias or allegations of bias or prejudging the case. Uh, she'd asked number ten, and they'd said it was okay. Well, I think she's tried throughout to kind of rise above the fray, and I think yeah. that's a, a wise decision on her part if she wanted. Uh, to be able eventually to make her basically her first public comments on the case when presenting the report to yeah. the House of Commons, which is what she did yesterday. Um, there's something uh, strange in Parliament called the usual channels, which is this sort of black box in which discussions happen between senior people in the Conservative Party, often whips, and senior people in the Labour Party, often whips. And some of my best contacts on both sides of the House really clam up when they're asked about what's gone on in the usual channels. But one thing that I, I wrote in the Times a few months ago was about something that happened in the usual channels. And that is not uh, what Jacob Rees-Mogg was asking Harriet Harman about, which was um, how could you stay in place? But it was how she became chair of this inquiry in the first place. Because, of course, she doesn't chair the Privileges Committee. Uh, Chris Bryant does. But he had already asserted that Boris Johnson had knowingly misled Parliament and therefore recused himself. And, and I'm told that what happened was basically that... Labour whips went to Conservative whips and said, look, we have no interest in the chair, which had to come from the Labour Party under parliamentary rules, being someone who your side has no confidence in, who Boris Johnson will instantly denounce, because uh, ultimately that means that this is not going to command the confidence of the House in, in the medium or long term. And so they basically presented the Tory whips with a list of potential names. I don't know who else was on it, but Harriet Harman was one of them. And... The Tory whips, I've written this before, it's not been denied, uh, said, yeah, no, they came back and said, yeah, he'd like 
Harriet Harman. Um, and I think part, I mean, they've always had actually a surprisingly good relationship. Um, you know, weirdly, Harriet Harman's aunt, I think, or cousin or something like that. It's Boris Johnson's godmother. Uh, when Jack Dromey, Harriet Harman's husband, died last year, Boris Johnson delivered a really um, moving and, and personal uh, statement of tribute in the House of Commons, which is not necessarily the sort of thing a Prime Minister would usually do for a Labour backbench MP. So for Boris Johnson's supporters, I guess, was the implication of Harriet Harman's point, to then come to the House of Commons and say, she's always been determined to bring it yeah, down. Yeah. This is a kangaroo court. Well, actually, the usual channels, half of which are Conservative, had sort of, um, you know, had given their benediction to Harriet Harman to chair this committee right from the very start. One striking thing during the debate last night, Hugo Rifkin, our Times colleague, tweeted saying, one startling thing about Rees-Mogg is how far he's fallen from what once seemed to be his own ideals. There was a time when he looked destined to be a grandee, a figure who could be speaker even. Preposterous but authoritative. But instead he chose hyper-partisan hackery. There is something in that, isn't there, Danny? That there, he, yeah. it, there was a time. I mean, he clearly there was a time when we thought he'd never take a government job. He wanted to be speaker of the house and this sort of long time, uh, you know, voice of authority on parliamentary, you know, uh, protocol um, in the Commons. And now he's just a sort of apologist for well, Boris to, Johnson. To be fair, he's a, he's a, he's a kind of an apologist for what he sees as his viewpoint, and he sees Boris Johnson as the best hope for his viewpoint. Let's let's put the best construction on it possible. But the interesting thing is that that um, he and Boris Johnson should have ended up as allies at all. First of all, considering that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has drifted to this position in the way that Hugo suggested, and Boris Johnson has also drifted towards him. They're both attracted by what is, and this is very important for everyone outside this, you know, outside the Westminster argument to reflect on what is without any question, a real demographic, a real audience, right? And, and Nigel Farage has gone after those people too. There are real people who um, look at everything that happens in Westminster in the way that it's all biased, it's all an establishment biased against, you know, Britain's traditional ways and a will of a people. Um, and this is quite a tempting audience. And Jacob Rees-Mogg has you know, received rapturous responses from those audiences. And so has Boris Johnson, and they've chased that. And I think probably encouraged, the the referendum encouraged them to believe it was a winning card. It was a winning audience. They, they're going to, and so, and so did the last general election. In fact, it, you know, it, truthfully, it's much more complicated than that. It isn't the winning card they think it is. But, uh, but it's interesting to watch them drift in all sorts of ways towards that audience. The important thing to understand is it's not made up in their heads there are real people who do support this stance. But, I mean, I think, as Danny alluded to earlier, Jacob Rees-Mogg is in, in some ways untypical, in ver various ways, in fact, untypical, of where Boris Johnson's remaining support in the Parliamentary Conservative Party comes from. I mean, as Danny said, his speech yesterday was extremely eloquent and he, he basically went one by one through various procedural objections to uh, the Privileges Committee's report and its method of reporting. Um, you know, and, and he prosecuted that case using case law and parliamentary precedent and also, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, he was actually the second person to deliver a speech in support of Boris Johnson. The first was a woman called Leah Nitschi, um, who... We've got a little clip of her, if you want to hear... Do you want to hear God, a little seamless, bit? Let's why not? Little, let's have a little listen. I cannot see where the evidence is where Boris Johnson misled Parliament knowingly, intentionally or recklessly... I'm from Grimsby, and I have to say it as I see it. 
I'm not sure in what case being from Grimsby you, gives you a unique insight. But, but, but that is an important yeah. difference, right? I mean, she is from a seat. Uh, I mean, not an important difference in the way she asserts, to be clear. But she is from a seat that had uh, not been Conservative since, I think, 1945, if not before, um, that manifestly voted Conservative for the first time because of that sort of electoral coalition that Boris Johnson in particular circumstances was able to deliver for the Conservative Party and almost certainly would not otherwise have done so. Yeah. Um, and that's very different to Jacob Rees-Mogg, who represents a seat on the outskirts of Bath, uh, albeit a Labour seat 97 to 2010 in part. Um, and they're from very different traditions. And, and, you know, there was a point in Leah Nitsch's speech where she said, you know, some, some Labour MP intervened on her and said, did it not occur to you that Boris Johnson it's might have lied because he's lied in the past? Yeah. And she said, she said, no, I wasn't, I'm not familiar with Boris Johnson's prior political or otherwise. I'm not career. a Conservative grantee. Jess Phillips asked her the question, do you think it's possible that Boris Johnson might have lied to her? Which, which when you listen to her, I mean, it was all quite tragic. I think he probably did. Um, and, um, the, you know, because, because, I also think probably Boris Johnson lies to himself. I think that's also, it's always very important to, to appreciate that one of the things that, um, that makes people good at deceit is their ability to deceive themselves, and so therefore they yeah. give the appearance of honesty. And um, I think that uh, you know it was pretty interesting. Her speech was was I'm afraid the only way of putting it was quite naive. Um, and I thought um, you know I thought she came across as really quite a nice person, but um, but was floundering actually. Yeah, and it was it, it, and, and then she didn't vote against it anyway. After all that? Well, look, I mean, it is clearly true that seven understates the number of Conservative MPs who uh, disagreed with the Privileges Committee's finding, methods, whatever, one or one or more of the above. Um, however, it is also true that the fact that only seven went through the division lobbies in opposition signifies um, an extraordinary diminution in the support that Boris Johnson yeah, has on the Conservative yeah. benches. And let's not... You know, let's not underplay this. He wasn't Prime Minister nine years ago. He was Prime Minister nine months ago. And a lot of the people, you know, looking through the division list last night, a lot of the people, including ministers and cabinet ministers, who went through the division lobbies in uh, in support of the Privileges Committee report nine, ten, eleven months ago would tell me in conversations around the parliamentary estate that they thought Boris Johnson, you know, should remain in place, that they thought that he was being hard done by on Partygate. Um, so I think that is an awkward position for many of them to find themselves in, yeah. uh, to say the least. Um, Henry, let's move away from Boris Johnson now and talk about, never mind his uh, resignation honours list, what will Keir Starmer do about the House of Lords? Well, we have Labour's medium or long-term answer, which is abolish it and replace it with a Senate of the nation of nations and regions, I think the phrase is, um, which was proposed by Gordon Brown in a very long report last year, um, <laughs> but you know, has, has been in some form Labour policy about, yeah, yeah, since yeah. 1997, if not probably before. Um, but one thing that Labour people I talk to are increasingly aware of is that in the short term, the sort of mathematical reality is that they're going to have to put loads and loads of people in the House of Lords. Because at the moment, uh, they're actually the third biggest grouping in the House of Lords. Conservatives, the largest, then Crossbench, second largest, and then Labour. And to... Obviously, the, Lord ha the Lords has a constitutional principle of ultimate deference to the House of Commons, but it can delay things a lot. And to get Keir Starmer's agenda through the House of Lords, um, Labour people are talking about having to have a massive influx of dozens, if not perhaps more than 100, uh, peers very quickly should Starmer win the election, just to be able to get his business through the upper house. So, you know, you had this week the spectacle of Keir Starmer saying that if he wins an election, 
and then is prime minister, then at the end of that, in whatever circumstances he leaves office, he would not do a resignation on his list. But actually, the sort of more important, it's not more about, immediate it's not about question, what he does on the way out, it's right, what he does on it's the way what in. his, to coin a phrase, appointment on his list might look like. And that's a really fascinating question because Labour's benches in the House of Lords, as benches in the House of Lords perhaps are want to be, quite old, uh, and the number of them who, who do a lot of the work is fairly small. Um, and so I think they are already beginning the work, I'm told, in, in Labour High Command of sort of looking at which working age people might be willing to do the job of uh, of sort of pushing through the Starmer government's business in the House of Lords. Because it's not just any uh, voting, you know, uh, meet people put just to go through the voting lobbies, but there's also this other problem of not having people who really know anything about running government departments and actually maybe installing some people who've been in government in yeah. the House of Lords to be ministers and to push the agenda through. Absolutely. Look, um, I don't think they're going to be able to or will need to get themselves a majority in the House of Lords. The problem is there are just so many Liberal Democrat peers, nobody can really win a majority is when you when you take into account the crossbenchers as well. And probably that's not a bad thing. I think with the, the Conservatives just lose all the time. And at the end, if you've got a majority in the House of Commons... It goes back to the House of Commons, and the House of Commons will accept some, but but go but push back on others, and eventually it will work. And but the Liberal Democrats won't oppose as many Labour things as they do, um, as they do um, to the Tories. Mm. And probably most of the time, the Liberal Democrats are going to go to the left of Labour, um, and then the Tories won't follow. So it'll be difficult for them to assemble majorities. They'll only really lose. They didn't have a majority at times during Blair either. No, but I think they had a. Pl- plurality, right? Yes. And and to even be the largest party as they were in the Blair years and then as David Cameron was very keen for the Conservatives yeah, to become, yeah. that's about a hundred new Labour peers. They'll have to appoint, they will definitely appoint um, some peers to the House of Lords. Whether they, uh, and they'll, they'll need to do it with an eye to the fact that, that they may not end up abolishing the House of Lords. They, they may, but it's just the moment you begin to think about what you put in its place, it becomes very complicated and <laughs> if you're the government, very obstructive. You're going to create another body which you may not have a majority in you know with the house of lords they they're safer off than they'll be with another body that they're going to appoint that could stop them legislating yeah, um, yeah, yeah. without could, a written could, constitution could, could, could. no i think labor's plans to abolish the house of lords are the, and look to be fair to keir starmer he sort of draped himself in them embraced them last year so you know you have to take him at his word that's the labor but look whenever yeah. i mention this to labor people um, around Keir Starmer or otherwise, um, they sort of um, laugh. Uh, and I think it's the sort of thing that's euphemistically referred to as a third-term priority, yeah. uh, which means, of course, it is not a priority at all. In fact, I was um, messaging someone quite senior in the Labour Party the other day um, who referred sort of um, jokingly to a retiring MP as Lord X. And I said, don't you mean Senator of the Nations and Regions X? And they replied, I'm a realist, Henry. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of how that policy is treated. We'll be interested to see how that, uh, how that pans out. Daniel Finkstein and Henry Zeffman there. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box. Up next, we're talking freedom. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. The United States and the freedom for which it stands must endure and prosper. It was that same yearning for freedom that nearly 250 years ago gave birth to a special place. Freedom. Personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans. The trouble with Labour is that they're just not at home with freedom. And it's Conservatives who stand up for freedom. Our country is a freedom-loving country. Freedom and the rule of law. These values are constant. They are set in stone. Freedom, freedom, freedom. What's it all about? It's a concept which is used actually a lot by American politicians because it's deeply ingrained in the sort of US national psyche. But does Britain care about freedom? Well, according to a new survey uh, for the Centre for Policy Studies, the UK public overwhelmingly believe that Britain is a free country. But unlike in the United States, freedom for freedom's sake is not a narrative that we usually buy into. So the study was carried out by the US pollster and communications expert Frank Luntz, and I asked him why he wanted to carry out the research. It was twofold. One is to measure freedom in terms of both national and personal and to see whether the people in Britain felt free. And the second was to see whether freedom still mattered in this country the way that it does in the U.S. And let me start by saying, by concluding, that the differences between the U.S. and the U.K. are significant. It's not just about language. It's not just about communication. Whereas Americans so treasure and celebrate and and raise the importance of freedom to a really intense level, it actually is less important in the UK. And there are other values such as security and, and fairness that are equivalent to freedom in terms of the priorities of British face. And the biggest surprise to me 
was that a plurality of people in this country, in your country, actually believe that the Labour Party is better able to offer the population freedom than the conservatives. And if that isn't a kick in the head and a wake up call for those who are listening to my voice right now about just how far the conservatives have sunk, I don't know what is. Well, I suppose let's go back to first principles. What do we mean by freedom? And is there a difference in different countries? Yes, and that's a great question to ask because it's something that I didn't fully understand until about 72 hours ago. Freedom in this country isn't the traditional freedom of speech, freedom of press. It's freedom to live the life I want, freedom to control my life and my decisions. It's a very personalized freedom. It's not theoretical. It's not ideological. It's about me, myself, and how I live my life. And that's very different than the U.S. The U.S., they're prepared to, to fight over my right not to get a vaccine or my right not to wear a mask. It's, it's, it, it's a day-to-day freedom in this country that I wasn't expecting. And different countries have different definitions. And I don't think the politicians realize that it's not the freedom that's guaranteed in the Constitution. It's not the freedom that they talk about in the Declaration of Independence. In the UK, it's an individual freedom. It's a personal freedom. And in fact, freedom does not seem to matter to most Brits when you talk about it nationally. But it matters tremendously when you talk about their day-to-day lives. And that's one of the distinct differences between the US and the UK. Do you think that's why, particularly in relation to the, the, where you talk about masks and so on, the response to the pandemic and lockdowns, actually, and it's changed slightly since, I think the public opinion shifted, but during uh, the pandemic in the UK, people who opposed the lockdown on libertarian grounds were sort of few and far between. And they were sort of treated as a sort of crank, uh, marginal uh, group. Uh, It really wasn't a sort of wrap yourself in the flag, this goes against our freedom uh, as Brits in a way that that was definitely part of the sort of national conversation in America. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that Americans look at freedom almost religiously, that it's part of their faith. It's part of how they define themselves, their country, um, and whether the country's successful or not. And in the UK, fairness has an equal and equivalent impact on people's freedom. And in fact, if you prioritize freedom, I know you're a conservative. If you prioritize fairness, I know you're with labor. And these partisan differences are significant. And let me add one more key component. Younger people are least concerned about freedom even though they have the most to gain or lose, depending on how much freedom they have. And older people over age 60 are most concerned about freedom, even though it really actually matters to them less. And if you're conservative, it means the freedom of, the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression. And if you're labor, it means freedom from, freedom from hunger, freedom from want, freedom from poverty. So even how we define freedom is different. But the overall importance does change based on where you are in life. Do you think that's also because 
uh, freedom being bound to the sort of libertarian, get the, get the state out of my way so I could be free to do what I want to do. Actually, young people especially, uh, right now we think, well, actually I'd quite like a bit of state to intervene so I can uh, get an education, I can get a house, I can get a job, that actually... You, you know, freedom's no good if there's if the you know the the basics of society aren't there to support you. Well, one of the things that's been clear with our research for CPS for the last three years is that people tend to personalize and individualize these principles, and their elected officials tend to make them more ideological and philosophical. And the fact is, the average individual doesn't understand that, even though they've been through school, they've been through education. They see theories and philosophy in terms of how it impacts them as individuals. So if you're trying to get a house, you want the freedom to live where you want to live, and you want to deny someone's freedom to prevent you from building somewhere. So what is one person's freedom, in essence, is another person's government control. And it depends on where you are on that socioeconomic status level. Depends on where you live. Depends on what your priorities are. How you define that freedom. But I do want to emphasize that freedom matters so much to conservatives more than anything else. And fairness matters so much to labor rights more than anything else. It's interesting that you talk about because clearly freedom plays such a big part in American politics and less so in British politics. Actually, in the never-ending hunt for a fresh way to say the same thing, which all major political parties have. You know, their slogans all sound a bit the same. Uh, the messaging all sounds a bit the same. It feels like there might be an opportunity there, maybe even for the Labour Party, to recast what you're doing or what they're doing in that sort of fresher, newer language of freedom. That's very insightful, and that's true. Because for Labour, if you just get the fairness vote, and the equality vote, which also matters. By the way, of all the attributes, there's nothing more divisive than equality. If you're a labor voter, equality is your first or second priority. And if you're a conservative voter, equality doesn't even hit the top five. But if you can pivot from fairness and equality to be able to make that freedom message, free to work where you want to work, free to live where you want to live, freedom, to experience the great uh, joys of the UK. And we guarantee it through our policies of equality and fairness. If you can pivot that way, that is a very strong case for labor. And let me do it conversely, which is it's hard to promote just freedom on its own. It has to be freedom with security or freedom with prosperity. Because in the end, if you're free but poor, you really aren't. If you're free, but you have limits to what you can do because of the economy or because of where you are, your status in life, that's hardly freedom at all. So both political parties need to be looking at these key attributes, opportunity, prosperity, equality, fairness, uh, freedom, and security. They're all mixed in together, but each voter prioritizes them differently. What is clear is that if you lose that essence of freedom, you can't get any other of these key attributes. And that's what we found in the CPS study. That was Frank Luntz, the uh, US pollster. 
Let's hear now from a Brit who lives in the United States and an American who lives in the UK. Sarah Baxter is now director of the Marie Colvin Centre for International Reporting, based in New York. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Matt. Great to have you with us. And Lewis Lukens is a senior partner with Signum Global Advisors, but was deputy chief of mission for the US Embassy, based in London and still lives here. Hi, Lewis. Hi, Matt. Um, let's start with you first, Sarah. Um, America is the leader of the free world. That's what I was told. Uh, was all that freedom a culture shock when you arrived in America? Uh, yeah, uh, it's certainly up to a point because uh, one of the things that's been happening in America more recently, I say, than when I lived there before around uh, 2001 to 2010, I went back again in 2020. What I was discovering was a sort of new concept of freedom, in my view, among uh, the sort of more Trump-like supporters, which was the freedom to be selfish and the freedom to say, well, F you to other people's freedoms. Uh, my freedom counts for more than yours. So that, I think, was what was going on with uh, I don't have to wear a mask or get a vaccine because that's my personal right. And I don't care if I'm impinging on your freedom to be healthy. Or um, I have my freedom to own a personal arsenal of weapons. Um, and I don't care if that makes you feel uh, unfree and unsafe. You know, if I'm able to carry a gun, a loaded gun out onto the streets and into potentially a school where your kids are, etc. Well, that's, you know, that's considered a personal freedom by people who believe in the Second Amendment rights and, and an unfettered interpretation of it in the Constitution to carry a weapon. But that makes me feel kind of less free because it makes me anxious that so many uh, <laughs> fellow citizens in the US are armed and loaded up. So um, that's what I would say is an increasing feeling of uh, freedom to be selfish, which I think the Tories have to be careful of in Britain, you know, just looking at that uh, video of the lockdown party, say, where, you know, uh, people in number 10 obviously felt free to have a good old shindig jingle, mingle and jingle. <laughs> jingle and mingle, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, but, you know, nobody else did. They all had to be locked down in their homes. So, uh, this is this is where I think uh, Frank Luntz is, and, and you were insightful about opportunities for Labour. Um, Lewis, this, I suppose the reverse question, did you feel less free when you arrived in Britain? No, I mean, I find Britain to be a very free place. And I think what's interesting is the contrast with the United States and sort of coming back to what Sarah was just saying, whereas there are these issues, whether it's guns or abortion or education, that really the Republican Party have seized on to sort of push this idea that you're entitled to what you want. That's your freedom, regardless of if that means trampling on somebody else's freedom. And I find in the UK, there's much more consensus on what are very hot, you know, very controversial topics in the United States. So whether it's gun control or healthcare access or education, there are issues here around those questions, but much less um, contentious and much less anger in the, the public debate about them. And I think people here recognize that we, our freedom is based on sort of a common understanding of what, what society and the government will provide to us. And I think there's not that unity of, or that agreement in the United States on those issues. Do you think there's, because America fought a war to be independent, does that then, in a way that, you know, against Britain ultimately, mm. uh, that Britain was normally, the, you know, people, countries that have secured their freedom from British rule, do you think that is a route 
in the American enthusiasm for freedom there, Lewis? Uh, yes. I mean, clearly some of the, this this sort of passion for freedom goes back to our founding and our the original constitution and the birth of our nation. But I will say, I think it has been extremely politicized over the last 15 or so years um, in the political sphere. And I think w- when we look at freedom in the United States, it's also important to sort of track that with a huge increase in distrust of government, right? People, and and this again, you know, not to make it too political, but it comes back to Donald Trump and the Republican Party and sort of bashing the Justice Department, bashing this the the FBI, um, in, institutions that used to be revered in the United States and suddenly now are 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 distrusted by many many Americans, especially on the Republican side of the aisle. And if you don't trust the government, I think. What, what the parties are doing or what the Republican Party is doing is sort of using that distrust of government to tell people you have to seize your freedoms and fight for them. And we will fight for those freedoms as opposed to the other party, which won't. So they're politicizing this distrust of government in the sort of under the umbrella of these are your freedoms that you're entitled to. Um, so I was, I was sort of thinking, and actually, Frank talked about the, the, this distinction of freedom to and freedom from the freedom to bear arms is clearly a big thing in america but uh, the the freedom to have an abortion if you want to uh is a completely different debate it's sort of weird that the that actually the people most enthusiastic about the freedom to not wear a mask or or the, i'm slightly oversimplifying uh but uh the freedom not to wear a mask or the freedom to carry a gun uh those people are most keen on those things seem to be the most keen to stop other people having the freedom to to have an abortion or or, or do what they want with their own bodies it's a, it's a weird it's a mix, it, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very weird mix because, I, I mean, I'm literally just been reading um, Ron DeSantis's book, The Courage to Be Free. Yeah. The TLS, I'm doing a review for them. And uh, honestly, uh, Florida has just signed into law. He personally signed into law uh, a bill restricting people's uh, women's rights to have an abortion after six weeks. So to me, that doesn't make Florida feel like a particularly free state. And um, he's also gone after the Walt Disney Corporation because uh, Walt Disney exercised its First Amendment rights, freedom of, you know, to, of speech, uh, to say that they didn't approve of the so-called don't say gay bill about um, children and um, teaching about and teaching children about sexual orientation in schools. And uh, Disney and he's gone after them and tried to penalize them. And Disney's now countersuing Ron DeSantis, who's very serious, you know, not rival for to Donald Trump for the presidency, um, uh, on the basis that he's trying to weaponize the government in Florida against them. And uh, and yet he's just written this book called The Courage to be Free in a state that seems to me to be becoming more authoritarian on the basis that he had some very sensible policies during the pandemic, which seemed to be carefully thought through. But it's sort of gone to his head and he's becoming quite authoritarian. So this use of the word free by politicians, you know, is becoming increasingly untethered from reality. Um, even Donald Trump, he gave an interview last night on Fox TV about um, his obstruction of justice case. And you could see it was like, well, they were my boxes and they belonged to me. And I just wanted more time to go through them and sort out my things, etc. So who cares what the government, as um, Lewis was saying, you know, thought that I ought to do with them? It was my right. To, they were mine. So uh, Lewis was absolutely right there about, you know, stopping the government in some cases, but in other cases, you have Republicans really using the government, as in their local government in Florida, the state government, to 
to stop other people being free. Is it that? Sorry, go on, Lewis. Sorry, I think I think it comes to this question of freedom from or freedom to. And I think what the Republicans are sort of pushing and someone like Ron DeSantis is pushing is freedom from being exposed to things that you may be uncomfortable with, whether it's, um, you know, you, your child has a classmate who has gay parents or there's a book in the school library that that talks about, you know, lesbian couples, all these things that, that Ron DeSantis is banning or trying to to reduce in the name of freedom is really freedom from being exposed to anything that you don't like or that you're not comfortable with, which kind of goes against the grain of the United States being this great multicultural melting pot society. But he's also just, you know, there's a law coming up in Florida, which is already exists in a number of um, Republican states where you can you can you don't even need a permit, permitless carry of a weapon. And that's that is really a loaded weapon, moreover. And now that you are free to carry your loaded weapon. But that certainly imposes impinges on other people's freedom, I would say, to feel safe. It's really interesting. And just in terms of in the in the this survey that, that Frank Luntz has done, in the UK in particular, younger people are less interested in freedom. And I saw I know I sort of slightly put this point to him that actually if you if you can't uh, uh, get your degree, if you can't buy a house, if you can't get a job, uh, uh, if you can't, you know, afford to put food on the table, then, you know, worrying about the concept like freedom, I can understand why, that, why they might have fallen down the list. I just wonder, to both of you really, Sarah, first of all, do you think there is an opportunity for British uh, British politicians, maybe it is the Labour Party, to sort of lay, to, to frame their pitch through the prism of freedom, that we want you to be free to have a you know the the freedom to have a roof over your head a decent job uh security freedom and security going together it's in, there is an opportunity there in britain in a way that we haven't really heard before yeah i think um you had that in america in the in in the the 30s and then and uh the roosevelt years when mm. you had the sort of freedom from fear freedom from want being put as one of these freedoms it was more severe then but but that idea that yeah i think that um you know, the idea that the young people have the idea that opportunities are being taken from them. And I think that's why they feel um, less free. So I think the idea that you could, you know, be free to lead the sort of life that your parents might have enjoyed that you feel is becoming increasingly impossible for you, that would be a winning message. But of course, um, Labour already has, I would have thought, the youth vote. They have to go after yeah, the yeah, elderly. Yes, yeah, an older people. That's the problem. And yeah. Actually, might more appeal to them. What do you think, Lewis, having been uh, in, in the UK for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the the notion that we can provide you freedom to, whether it's to buy a house, to get educated, to have decent health care, to live where you want to live, to breathe, keep clean air, all those things are very compelling messages. But as Sarah said, they, they resonate mostly with young people who are probably already labor voters or the United States Democratic voters. Um, so the, the trick is to sort of to to frame that freedom to message to an older generation that is probably already has what they mostly want and need. That older generation, I should say, speaking as a parent myself, though, of course, is worried about their kids' generation. Yeah. So that's one way that you can try and you bridge could, that. You could maybe frame it exactly. as that's a freedom that you had as parents, grandparents, that we think that everyone should therefore have. That sort of, you know, the... the um, what's the, the Ed Miliband tried to try to sort of frame it as the British dream, you know, wrapping it in the sort of the American dream. It never quite landed. But it's a really interesting uh, debate as to whether or not there is an opportunity there for. I mean, it could maybe it's something that the the the, the, the Tories could try and do as well. 
And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And send me an email, matt at times.radio, if you so please. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.